I'm Lance Carpenter, if you don't know me. Um, one thing that uh, I wanted to ask everybody, that video that we showed beforehand, Nicole Nordeman, um, how many have heard that song before? Okay, quite a few. Um, Carrie Adolph actually sent that video to me um, because that's been speaking to her uh, recently. I thought it was a really good one to kind of start things off with. And for those of you who have been to the Christian Activity Center over in East St. Louis, how many have done that? Okay, you can relate to the pile of rocks that was in the video, right? Okay, and, and it said, out of the rubble I can see the stars. And it's really pretty cool because over there at uh, Christian Activity Center, they're, they're actually, they tore down an old church and they're moving everything so they can rebuild um, another chapel. So it's kind of a, you know, relates to what's going on here for us. So I thought that was really cool that Carrie shared that with me. Um, I'm going to continue on in the uh, study of Hebrews that Bill started. I see you guys are back from vacation. Is that what's going on? Tried to sneak in on us, but it didn't work, did it? Anyway, um, we're going to continue on with Hebrews. Uh, notice we also have just one screen. Okay, we're improvising here. Things happen as we do church, and uh, sometimes they don't go the way we planned it. But that's cool because God's in control. So we got the one screen, and um, I don't have a whole lot of... Uh, you know, fancy stuff for you today. Uh, no explosions on the slides, no embedded videos or anything like that. In fact, I probably don't have any good stories. Uh, my apologies. But what we're doing is we're getting into Hebrews and we're doing a study that dives a little bit deeper into the Word and, and looks a little more deeply into what God's saying to us. And so some of you have probably heard me talk about the two different ways you can read Scripture. Okay, you can, it's like a boat on a lake. Has anybody heard me talk about this? If you have, I apologize. I'm going to do it again. But it's like a boat on a lake, and you can take the boat and go real fast across the lake and see the whole lake, okay? That's one way of reading Scripture. You read Scripture for its totality. You try and read all of it, take in all of what Scripture has to say. But every now and then, you need to slow the boat down and take a look down into the lake and, and see what's underneath the boat. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We're going to do what's called an exegesis and get deeper into the Word and try to see what God has for us that's more detailed about the Scripture. So Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 is where Bill left off, and that's on page 838 of the Bibles we have here. Um, if you have your own Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in that. I'm going to have the words up here, but follow along in your Bible. Um, if God speaks to you in a certain way, write in there and take notes, okay? Underline, highlight, draw pictures, doodle, whatever. But that'll bring back to memory when you read that later on sometime or whatever, um, some things that we discussed. So feel free to, to follow along in your Bible, take notes or whatever. We also have our contact cards. Did everybody get a contact card? Hold up your contact cards. Hold them up higher so I can see them. Okay. If you didn't get one, go ahead and grab one in the back. Um, you can take notes on that. The bottom part you can tear off and put prayer requests on there. Please fill out your name and address and things like that so we know that you're here. Um, and if you're a first-time visitor, we'd love to know that. Um, so please take the time to fill that out. But uh, we have those. We also have our announcement sheets um, back there so you can see what else is going on besides the things that Corey talked about earlier today. All right. So Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Let's go ahead and get started. Oops. I went too fast. There we go. Hebrews 2.10. 
So verse 10 says, in bringing many sons to glory, and I'm using the New International Version, which is the same version we've got in the, in the Pew Bibles. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this is talking again about Jesus, which Bill left off with the last time we were talking by Hebrews, talking about Jesus and who he was and why he is to be exalted above everything. So here, first thing, God is defined as the creator of all existence. Okay, and once again, we establish his undeniable authority. It says, for whom and through whom everything exists. Okay, that's God. So we're establishing his authority, and that's undeniable again. Furthermore, it reveals the way that it reveals his nature. Okay, the salvation that God provides for us. God has a design for that. He has a plan for our salvation. And that salvation is perfect. Okay? And it's interesting that, that he says that the author of their salvation it will be made perfect through suffering. And that's kind of a uh, uh, thing that doesn't make sense to us. Okay? We don't think of things being perfected through suffering, right? We usually think of perfect as being pain-free, without hassle, you know, just smooth sailing, right? That's kind of our normal way of thinking about um, things being perfect. But God says that his salvation is made perfect through suffering. And that fits his nature. That is his nature. And I'm clicking things here unknowingly. Okay. Um, you know, that fits his nature. His salvation fits his nature. And, and we need to understand that. When we do understand that, when we understand that God perfects things through suffering, does that not help us a little bit to understand what's going on in our lives? Okay, when we're going through suffering or discomfort or pain or trials or things like that, that is God perfecting us as well. So if we can understand that, if we can grasp that, that helps us through those, those periods. Okay? And it, it occurs to me now that I started without praying. So all the stuff that I said before now doesn't count, okay? So let's go ahead and pray now, if we could. Heavenly Father, um, I apologize for forgetting to pray. But Lord, uh, you, you know our hearts and our minds, and you are here with us today, and I thank you for that. I thank you, God, that you are a personal God who interacts with each and every one of us individually and personally. I thank you, Lord, that you desire for us to learn about you and to come to know you more. And I pray that this morning that's what happens. I pray, Father, that your word would be illuminated and that we would be able to understand it um, by, by the wisdom that is granted to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, I also pray that we be moved and touched today so that through any trials or discomfort or pain or suffering that we're experiencing, we might be perfected. I thank you, Lord, for the way you deal with us and the way you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, everything counts from now on, all right? So, um, the other thing that God does is he grants us greater clarity of vision in this life by helping us to understand that things are perfected or we are perfected through suffering. Um, he also talks about the fact that Jesus alone is the author, okay? The author of our salvation is Jesus, Okay? And in different versions, they use different words. Does anybody have a uh, uh, Revised Standard or a New American Standard Bible? Anybody? No? Ah, what does it say in yours for that? Instead of, of uh, the author. It says the perfect, perfect author. 
Okay, so the same thing. How about King James? Anybody have a King James version? Nobody reads King James anymore, right? King James says the captain of our salvation. I thought that was kind of a cool way to say it. Maybe it's my nautical background, but he's the captain of our salvation. And so this just establishes once again that Jesus is the one that makes salvation possible. Now, as we go through this, you'll find, okay, this is just talking about the gospel. And it is. We're just talking about the gospel and salvation and things like that. And we say, well, that's kind of basic, right? Maybe it is, but it helps us to understand it and always helps us to go back and refresh our thinking about it because we don't want to take that for granted. Okay, that's not something that is to be taken for granted. So, yes, we're going to be talking about the gospel here, but talking about it in a little bit greater depth. Okay, so Hebrews 2.11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So who are we talking about here? The one who makes men holy, who is that? That's God, Jesus. And those who are made holy, who's that? That's us. Okay, so both Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and we are of the same family. Is that cool or what? Same family. That's amazing. Again, when we think about the fact that the previous verse talked about God as the creator of all uh, existence, and yet we're in the same family. That's pretty cool. So that just shows that God's plan for our salvation is a personal one. It's a plan that is for us as individuals. He's personally involved in it, and this is demonstrated by the intimate relationship we have with him upon our salvation. That intimate relationship is one of family. Okay, everybody knows what a family is like, right? Um, there are some who are, are not blessed with a family. And family can be functional, it can be dysfunctional. More often than not, they're dysfunctional because we have sin in our lives. So, so we kind of screw things up. But you all kind of know what family's like. Now, some folks, orphans, uh, perhaps don't know what family's like. But we all, I think, kind of understand what family is like and the value of that, why that's a good thing. Being part of God's family is an awesome thing. And here it promises us that we are that once we partake of salvation. Okay, it's also important to note that we are made holy. Okay, we are made holy. And that infers two things. One, we didn't start out that way, right? If we have to be made holy, that means we're not holy to begin with, right? So that's one thing that's inferred here. Second thing is that we must be made holy by some event that's outside of ourselves, something external, something that's not controlled by us. Okay, so that's the two things that's inferred here. Um, and then the, the other thing in this verse is that uh, there's evidence of our perfect adoption, okay, adoption into God's family because of Jesus' relation to us. What does he call us? He calls us brothers, okay, and he acknowledges that. And he's not ashamed of that. How many people have brothers that you're ashamed of? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. But I have a brother who has a brother who's he's ashamed of. Anyway, the point is that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We are part of the family, and he is proud of that. He willingly acknowledges that. That's huge, too. Because that means that we're not going to be disenfranchised. We're not going to be kicked out. We're not going to be excommunicated from the family. Okay, we won't be ostracized. We won't be put outside. 
He, are, he calls his brothers and he does it willingly. So that is a good promise for us to keep in mind that we will not be excluded from the family. Okay? There's no shame in Jesus' imperfect, flawed, clumsy, awkward brothers. That's us. Right? No shame in that. Okay, 2.12. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Now, the important thing here to remember is, is who, who is this uh, book being written to? Remember Bill talking about that? Being written to the Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, um, predominantly in Jerusalem, but throughout Judea. We don't know specifically who the author is, but the point is they're writing to a Jewish heritage people, people who understand what the nation of Israel is all about. And that helps us to understand why they use some of the references that they use. In this one, the writer resorts to some familiar references from Scripture to illustrate the point that he made about Jesus calling us brothers. Okay? And the first one that he uses in, the next, um, in this one is from Psalm 22. Okay, so go ahead and open up to Psalm 22 in your, in your Bibles. I don't know where, what page that's on. Um, the first person to find it in the Pew Bible, shout out the page. Okay, Psalm 22. Now, something about Psalm 22, and I'll show it to you right here. Can you read that? Probably not, but it's all up there. But Psalm 22, if you read it in your Bibles, that is probably the most famous prophetic psalm in the Old Testament. And if you read through it, you'll see some things that, that, uh, that David talks about that is very prophetic of what happened to Jesus, okay? He talks about um, being pierced. He talks about his feet and his hands being pierced. He talks about um, people exchanging lots for his clothing. He talks about, um, you know, his strength being dried up. You know, he talks about things that happened when he was crucified, okay? That's what Psalm 22 refers to. So I think it's pretty interesting that they used this particular reference to point to the fact that Jesus refers to us as brothers, okay? And where does it say that? In verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you, okay? You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. So I thought that was kind of interesting that, that the author used this particular psalm to point out the fact that Jesus refers to us as brothers. This is a very famous psalm and a very meaningful psalm to the Jewish nation. Okay, Hebrews 2.13, he says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. And then in Hebrews 2, oh, that's from Isaiah 8, um, and where he talks about that, it says it's interesting to understand that Isaiah is writing about um, a, a bad thing coming to Israel, okay? And despite that, he says that I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'll put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are the signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. So despite the bad things that he's prophesying here, he still puts his trust in him, and he talks about the children that God has given him. So again, what, um, and, and the next two verses, uh, no, I take it back. Um, 
when in a scripture something needs to be emphasized or really the point driven home or something like that, it's usually mentioned three times. Okay, it's repeated three times. And three is the number of completeness. And so when the author uses quotes from scripture to point out the fact that Jesus refers to us as brothers, it does that three times, so that's very complete. That's very um, emphatic. Okay. Now, here in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, having talked about our similarities being in the same family, okay, Jesus talks about us being in the same family with, with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, he's, the writer addresses our differences, okay, what's different about us from God. So, one difference is very clear, and that is that we are flesh and blood, okay? God is spirit, we are flesh and blood. But even with this difference, God saw fit to relate to us by becoming flesh and blood himself. Okay? It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay? So here in Hebrews 2.14, um, the writer is telling us that that Jesus chose to become flesh and blood himself, okay, because that's what we are, okay? Um, why was this even necessary? You know, why did Jesus even have to do that? Could God have come up with a salvation plan that didn't require that? Do you think he could? Nobody, nobody nodding their heads or shaking their Sure, God can do that. God can do anything, right? God can do anything. So he could have come up with the salvation plan that did not require Jesus to become flesh and blood, come down and be crucified and risen again. But he didn't do that. He chose this way. Okay? Flesh and blood um, deteriorate, and we experience death. Okay? We get old. We get older. We get decrepit. We get bent over, and eventually we die. That's what happens to flesh and blood. Okay, and that's brought about by sin. Sin is the reason that happens. So this death is inevitable, and consequently it's a source of fear for men. Okay, mankind has had this fear of death forever. Okay? Um, and, and sometimes uh, it doesn't result just in fear, but a fear that's so prevalent that it enslaves us. It puts us in bondage. Okay, and that's what it talks about in 15. Free all those who are held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, so we've actually been kind of slaves to this fear. And when you think about it, um, how many times have you exhibited or experienced fear or anxiety or troubled thoughts because of um, the fact that we are flesh and blood, because of illness or because of a sickness or because things weren't going the way you wanted to um, or, or maybe you are on death's doorstep? Those kind of things create anxiety for us. But Jesus shared in humanity so that he could experience that, but moreover, so that we knew he experienced that. Okay? Hebrews 2.16, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Okay, the thing here is that the writer, again, we talked about angels in the first chapter, uh, and in the beginning of this chapter, it talked about angels. Why? Because um, the Hebrew tradition 
looked at angels very highly. Angels were often the deliverers or the messengers of God. So they're really held up there very high. Um, but here, the writer is reminding us that it's not for the angels that he did this. It's for Abraham's descendants. And who are Abraham's descendants? The nation of Israel, okay? And us, okay? We are also Abraham's descendants. So the point the author is making here when he's writing to the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem is, look, this salvation is not for somebody else. It's for you, okay? And he could be pointing right at them. It's for you. In fact, I can point it at all of you. I can point at me. This is for each one of us. For the person, it's intended for the person who is sitting in your seat. That's who it's intended for, okay? So this salvation is personal, and it's intended for you individually. That is a major, major promise that I think is pretty encouraging. So, moving on to 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, when we're reading Scripture, every now and then we come across these phrases Okay, and the phrases point you somewhere else. Okay, sometimes you'll see the word therefore in Scripture. And when you see the word therefore, what are we supposed to do? See what it's there for. So you need to tie it to something else. Another one is for this reason. Okay, for what reason? Now, sometimes when we, when we try and tie that to something, you have to look either before the verse or after the verse. In this case, uh, it's after the phrase. For this reason, and that little phrase there, it says, in order that, that's kind of our clue. Okay, that's the pointer that says, this is the reason. For this reason, in order that, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So that gives us a clue as to why or what the reason is. The reason is that we need a priest and we need atonement. Now, atonement is another one that's, used differently. And this is the one where the uh, uh, New American Standard is a little bit different. What does yours say? Propitiation. What a great word. Try to use that in normal conversation. Okay, it's kind of hard to do. Propitiation. Um, another term from the King James um, is reconciliation. So what that means is just bringing us together despite the sin. Okay, God takes away the sin so that we can have a relationship. And that's the reason why Jesus had to take on flesh and blood so that this could happen. He could serve as a faithful and merciful high priest for us and our sins could be removed. Now just think, if our sins were not taken away and we have a personal relationship with God the Father, what kind of relationship would that be if all he saw was our sin? Okay? Can you imagine that? Well, you probably can imagine that. What's it like when you have a relationship with somebody and all you can see is their faults? All you can see is their flaws. All you can see is the things they screw up. What kind of relationship is that? That's not a very good one, right? It's not very encouraging. It's not a relationship that you want to indulge in, that you want to participate in, that you want to be there for, okay? So there's a little lesson there. If you want better relationships, don't focus on people's faults, okay? But... God removed our sins. He took those away so that that would not be an encumbrance or an impediment to our having a very positive and, and 
good relationship with God the Father. Okay, that's, that's encouraging too. Um, so why do we need a merciful and faithful high priest? Well, one reason is because we tend to think about salvation in the church sometimes as a one-and-done deal. Okay, we, we say the sinner's prayer, we accept salvation, and we get our ticket punched to heaven. Right? Done. I mean, have you been taught that or heard that before in the church? Certainly, that's kind of how we go about it sometimes. But the reality is that we have to contend with this sin problem continuously. How many people had their sin go away upon accepting Christ? Or forever. Okay, it did. It went away, but we did it again. Okay, we continue to sin. So consequently, we have Jesus serving as our mediator, okay, our arbitrator, our, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking about? Um, our advocate, okay, before the throne of, father, of the Father. And he's continuously doing that for us. So as we continue to sin, as we continue to confess our sin, as we continue to repent from our sin, Jesus is there reminding God, as if he needs reminding, that it's okay. I took all that away. The relationship is intact. The relationship is still strong. The relationship is still a good one. Okay, that's why we need that high priest. That's why we need a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Okay, now, um, you know, the access to heaven, the ticket punched to heaven. Yes, that is part of what salvation is all about. But if we look at it just as that, then we're truly cheating God. We are cheating God if we think that's all it takes is just to get us access into heaven. Truly, our purpose here is to worship God and to serve him in his kingdom. Okay, and we do that after salvation. Okay, once we have achieved salvation, we continue to serve God. We continue to honor him and worship him. That is a continuous process. So if we're thinking about being a Christian as being just having access to heaven, we're cheating God. Okay, that's not right. We need to, we need to repent from that as well. Okay, and then the last, uh, the last verse of the chapter is 2.18, and it says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, this is kind of the last piece of, of why the gospel is the way it is. Okay, we close out this chapter. This is a pretty fantastic revelation. Um, God's design included Christ being perfected through suffering, and we can be confident that he can help us in temptation. Okay? Um, do we think that God needs to experience something? Did Jesus need to experience temptation or experience, um, uh, you know, humanity in order to understand it? Do we think that's the case? Who is the creator of emotion? Who's the creator of feelings? That's God. We should cue the music if we can do that. Can we? There it is. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Okay, who's the creator of feelings? Trying to forget my. Anyway, that doesn't do it for me. 
okay? That just doesn't cut it for me. When I think of feelings, I think a little bit more like this. That's more like what I think about when I think of feelings. But uh, anyway, thank you for that, guys. Um, you know, who is the creator of emotion? Who created feelings? Who made those up? God did, right? God created those things for us. So, you know, does God need to experience the feelings in order to relate to us? I don't think so. But in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite love, he chose to become flesh and blood and experience them down here with us, okay? Not because he needed to, not because he had to, not because he didn't understand it, but because he wants us to be confident that he does get it, okay? We can be confident in that. We know that Jesus came to earth and lived amongst us and experienced the same things that we did and has been able to successfully overcome them. Okay? That's probably the more important thing is that Jesus not only experienced them, but he serves as an example for how we are to respond to them. Okay? Jesus experienced what it was like to be amidst a sinful world, and yet he did not sin. He, he served as that perfect example for us. So when we get caught up in our feelings, we get caught up in our emotions, sometimes we sin in that. Okay? But Jesus served as an example for us. Now, there are lots of good people out there, lots of men and women who have successfully um, experienced emotions and not sinned. But we can't count on people to serve as that example for us. We have a perfect example in Jesus Christ. So we can be confident that God understands what we're going through. Okay, we can be confident that God knows what we're up against. And I think that's huge. Um, the, the challenge we have is, do we believe it? You know, do we really believe that? When we're undergoing suffering or we're undergoing some pain or we have some challenges with adversity, do we believe that we have somebody else we can look to who's gone through that same kind of thing and been successful in honoring God through it? We need to believe that. We need to understand it and believe it. So he's a perfect example for us uh, as an appropriate response to our suffering and temptation. Now, it would be one thing to read about that. It would be one thing to read all the self-help books that say, here's how you should react when facing troubles. Here's how you should react when facing tribulation. There's a lot of people who've written books about that. There's a multi-million dollar industry of books about that, how to live life and how to do it in a wholesome way. But Jesus lived it, and showed us by his example. That's huge. That's very, very powerful. Okay, we actually get to see it in action through Scripture. So, in summary, just to wrap things up here, a couple bullet points that, that reinforce what we've learned about in this uh, portion of Scripture. One, God's salvation plan is perfect. It is perfect. Even though it may not be the one we would have devised, praise God he didn't use ours, you know, but his plan is perfect. It demands a sacrifice perfected by suffering. 
something, again, we don't necessarily understand, but when we do start to understand it, we get a glimpse of what God's nature is. We understand his love a little better when we understand that. Um, three, Jesus became a human and experienced suffering and temptation. That is a fact. Okay, that is a historical fact that we can look up and see it actually happened. Um, we are adopted into God's family through this perfect salvation. So that changes our relationship with God. And then finally, Jesus serves as our faithful advocate and example in response to suffering and temptation. Okay? So that's what we got today. That just wraps up chapter 2 of Hebrews. Hopefully it was helpful. Hopefully we were able to get into a little bit deeper and see some of the meaning behind it. Um, and we can continue this as we go through this series with Bill. So join me once again in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you that, uh, that you are the ultimate in wisdom and understanding, and you know what's best for us. You know the kind of salvation we require, and beyond that, you provided it, and it's here for us to accept and, and to receive. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who has not received this salvation, who has not partaken of becoming a child of yours and a member of your family, I pray that they would do so now and pray to you to accept them and receive them into your family. And Father, I pray that they would seek somebody out to talk to about that because that's just the beginning of the road. It's the beginning of the path to sanctification and becoming more and more like you. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience, a wonderful life, a wonderful eternal life that starts today, the day that we accept your salvation. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and worship and to join with each other. I pray that if there is suffering or pain or illness or just anxiety that's out there in your body of believers, that you would comfort it and that we would be there to help facilitate that, that healing process. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together and for making us into your body. In Jesus' name, amen.